fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. This 5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Dave Martino. It's Mission Impossible 3. Go see it. Yeah, three. It's like seven yeah. now. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I it's just. I, well, three is the last one I saw. It's this <laughs> is seven, part one. Part one? Part one, yes. Dead Reckoning is part one. You mean there's a part two? There is going to be a part two next year, maybe. But, oh, come on. I hate that. I'm not waiting <laughs> a year to see the second part. I don't, wait, I don't wait a week to see a second part of a show <laughs> nowadays. I'm so spoiled with streaming. Yeah, like if they don't put a whole, whole season up, no. Right? I wait. <laughs> Same as I've been. I started watching that uh, oh, uh, Hijack. And then I realized there's yeah. only a couple episodes up, so I just like forget it. I'm waiting till they're all up. <laughs> I'm old. I forget. You know. So you're gonna you're gonna wait till next year. Well, yeah, because I, I'll forget what happened. <laughs> I forget one week yeah. to the next. So if I'm waiting till next week, and it's like, oh, what happened last week? You know, recaps don't do it either. I have to watch the whole episode one yeah. again. You have to rewatch. Yeah. So this is yeah, it's too much. That's for a new thing. thing. Well, it's for you. I, I don't have time for new things. <laughs> Oh, uh, but so Mission Impossible, yes, no, maybe. I liked it. Thought it was oh, good. Of course yeah. you did. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't as good as Fallout, which was the one before it, number six. I guess I should watch that one, too, then. That's a really good one. I mean, Tom Cruise is going to be mad at me. He'll never do a show. <laughs> well, yeah. you've seen three, so forget about, th well, you know, forget about watching three again and just start with four. But is that I'll, Rogue Nation? I'll I, forget, think, I think that's Rogue Nation. I don't Nation. know. You <laughs> saw these names. My God. <laughs> I just know it's Mission Impossible. And Barbie. I bet you can't wait to see that. Oh, I hope yeah. they have an unedited, like a rated R or X version. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right now I'm just not, I'm not buying it. I don't, I do not want to wait in a theater and pay money for that. Yeah, I'm not really that interested in that. Barbie. I mean, but something, something wrong. <laughs> Other than he's got his shirt off, that's great. But, you know, have a little bit more action, and then maybe I'll go see it, you know. Yeah. I don't know. What are you going to do with that? I guess I'm, a, I'm an old, old fuddy-duddy. And, <laughs> you know, what happened on the weekend? This guy, you know, this guy works for the oil fields. He's driving up in uh, way up north in B.C. in Canada, you know, and he sees this little baby moose on the yeah. side of the road. Have you seen that one yet? No, no. Oh, yeah, he sees this, and then uh, a couple of cars almost hit it, and he pulls over, try and shoot it away, and he sees this big black bear, and he opens his door to shoot it away, and the little baby uh, moose comes over and jumps in his truck. <laughs> so he said, well, I'll wait till the bear goes and see if his mother shows up, and she never did, so he um, drives further and calls it into the, uh, you know, animal sort of thing, and they... Came and got it and everything, and he gets to his job, and then they fire him for that. Really? Yeah. How wow. rude! How rude! Being <laughs> a nice guy, you get fired for that. A lot really? of backlash. You know, ADP Petroleum, huge backlash. They had to take down their Facebook page when that got posted from the wow. news. 
So yeah, I don't blame them. I I was I, that upset me because he was just doing that. What would what would you do if you were there, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not supposed to, but what happens? Are you just going to let it kick it out of your truck and say go die? You know? Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. You know? Wow. I posted the video for anybody that wants to see it. It's could really even cute. get it? Could even get it out of the truck? No, actually, I don't think, I don't know if you, probably, I mean, if you, I guess if you went wild on it and scared it enough, it would, but I don't know, but why would you, I mean, why, I don't understand that behavior, so. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, crazy world, anyway. Anyway, speaking of crazy, now we've got a writer, (laughs) and (laughs) he's not on strike, no, anyway, so uh, he's written, uh, I believe, 10 books. Very interesting. Found him on Instagram. I always like finding uh, newer writers as well as the big the big guys. It's more interesting. Um, so anyway, let's welcome to the show. Um, so we've got Mr. Christopher Gare. So thank you for being here. My pleasure. It's nice to be here. A nice afternoon. Yeah, it is somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I heard you guys talking about the movies, and I'm like, I really wanted to jump in the bandwagon when you're talking about the whole part one, part two thing. My husband has been trying to get me to watch Dune, and when Dune came out, it was part one. They shot it. They just kind of ended it abruptly, and they never knew if they were going to go back and finish it. He's like, you need to watch it. I'm like, I'm not committing. <laughs> Absolutely not. Why would I waste my time? Yeah, it kind of drives me nuts because I do tend – I will forget. If I go watch this movie, I will forget. One one year or two years from now when it comes out, the, the part two, I'll be trying to remember everything that happens. I mean, you'll remember the basics, I guess, but – it's just too much. Like I said, I can't wait a week. I'm getting old. <laughs> Time's running out. Mine's not like it used to be. They don't listen to me anyway, so it doesn't matter. So you've been writing. So you've been writing for a little while now. So what, what got you into this uh, world of writing? What were you thinking? I think it was because when I was very, very young, my mother was a huge reader to me. I mean, she read everything to the point where my favorite books I could read back to her as a child without technically reading the words. I, mem- I just memorized them. And I got into grade school. We would, uh, this is really dating me, but the Judy Bloom books would come out. Uh, the teacher would read them to us. And I always kept thinking afterwards, I'm like, God, I, I want more. So I would try to write a continuation of these stories myself. Never got very far with them, but I tried. Got into junior high. Um, actually, in grade school, I used to write my own puppet plays. Got into junior high, started writing some atrocious short stories. Uh, got into high school, tried writing an atrocious attempt at a novel and Went into college to also write some very atrocious stories and hopefully made them a little bit better. And from there, um, graduated and started writing um, actual novels. Wow. So what gave you the courage then? Like you're you're calling them atrocious, like your early works and and writing. And and writers do. I still, even my newest book is atrocious. I can't believe people buy it. And I've got 30 now. So I think, um, but. What gave you the, um, I say courage, because in a way it is today, nowadays. There's so much so much with social media, and people can say and do all sorts of things to you, and uh, it's you're really ex- putting yourself out there, right? So um, was there some sort of, I don't know, some sort of an event or thing that happened that kind of gave you the kind of, yeah, I'm going to write, I'm going to do a full novel? I think it was probably stubbornness, because I really don't know how to do anything else. The folks who know me, I'm fairly sarcastic, speak it very fluently, and I'm not probably the person you want in customer service anywhere. So if I'm not going to do that, then it's better that I just sit down and write. Uh, But I think what prompted it with me, um, 
as I, as I was going through the coming out process in my 20s, I had never read anything that was made for me. I, I'd never read anything that was that didn't have characters who were dying, dying of you know, AIDS, dying of this, dying of that, or having all these problems with families and being kicked out. There was nothing funny out there. And I wanted something funny, something that I could identify with, character I could identify with, and situations that were just legitimately funny. So I ended up writing three comedies from the get-go that were just things I wished I had been able to read at that age. And that's what pushed me to write from that point. Right, right. Now, you you wrote under a different name for that, didn't you? Wasn't that, what was that, Cage Allen? Was that you? Cage Allen, right. The first three books, I really um, intelligent uh, name there. I just went and took my initials, K-A-G, came up with Cage, and then my middle name is Allen, but my husband's middle name is Allen, but he spells his A-L-A-N and claims that that is the correct spelling of the word Allen and that my A-L-L-E-N is the incorrect spelling of it. This is true. So that's what he said. <laughs> For years, he's insisted that, so I thought, well, it'd be kind of romantic at that time to t- take his middle name and kind of combine it with my first name and just go with that. Well, and so so um, when you do uh, do it under a different name like that, and then you changed. Like, why did you go do three books like that and then change back to your real name? After the, um, after the third comedy, uh, the third comedy was coming out at a point in my life when my father had been diagnosed with advanced Alzheimer's. And I ended up going through seven years of being a caregiver with him, uh, during which time I think the most I could come up with was a short story for a group of anthologies that some other authors had invited me to join. And when that was all done, um, when my father had passed, it was trying to cope with having lost my father-in-law at that point, having lost a very good friend and fellow author named Dorian Gray out of Chicago. I started losing other people in my family and my friends. And then my dad uh, had passed. And it was, I don't want to say it was like midlife crisis. I was a little young for that at the time. But I really just started to lose all sense of self. I started to lose an understanding of what hope meant. And my husband just kind of said, I'm putting my foot down from now on. We're not going to deal with two personas. We're going to deal with one, and we're going to get through this like this. So I thought, well, you know what? It's time. I don't have to hide constantly behind a pseudonym. You did it for privacy in the 90s. You didn't necessarily have to do it now. So it felt like a really good time to just say, hey, this is me. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Uh, do you think your writing's changed then from from the first name to the to your own name? Are you doing things differently? Yes, but I think most of that had to do with my life experience at the time. I really thought I was going to be writing comedies my entire life. I was comfortable with it. I enjoyed it. People reacted well to it. And then after dealing with seven years with Alzheimer's, friends and family had asked me for years, when are you going to write something serious? So I did. I had written a novella called Falling Awake released that, and pretty soon those same people came back and said, when are you going to write something funny again? <laughs> people are a little fickle. With, with the newest book you've got, it's called Butterflies I Have Known. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So what's the premise of this book? Well, let me see if I can give you the really nice condensed version I have worked months on because I haven't been able to do it yet. It is essentially revolving around two 31-year-old uh, guys. One is a professor at Wayne State University. The other is... Uh, Somebody who works at his father's, it's the Asian market. It's actually based on a real Asian market in the area, the largest in southeast Michigan. And during COVID, for two years, the Wayne State professor would go into the market, and he would essentially be tormented by this Asian character in the store where he'd go in, and 
all the products that he would get weekly, because he was a person who would buy the same thing each week, would be moved in different parts of the store. So he would have to go up to this person and ask, and Gian, the character's name was Gian, Gian would act like they'd been moved all along, and he was just basically nuts. So the two of them had been doing this little dance for two years. They end up meeting one night at the Detroit Institute of Arts for a World War II photography exhibit, and the person uh, who's in his 90s who had taken the photos ends up meeting them, shows them around, and becomes convinced uh, that they are the reincarnated souls of two soldiers he knew during World War II. Wow. Did you did you have, like, um, was there a theme or a purpose behind this? Like, there's just something you want a reader to get besides the entertainment value of the story? Was there something deeper here? I think it was about, well, my husband is is half Chinese, so I tend to incorporate Asian characters into my books not as secondary characters, but as, as primary, is not just the um, to laugh at them per se, but they're, they're usually more intelligent than Caucasian characters. But in this, I really wanted to take two very, very different characters. The character of Matthew is very stoic, very proper, and Gene is the exact opposite. He's a prankster. And I wanted to see if I could get them together and try and figure out why they work together and to look at their families, the very, very different families growing up, and how neither one of them felt comfortable in their own families or in their own skin, put them together and see if they could actually work and um, kind of see where that went. So it was, an examina- it was an examination of Asian culture, white culture, and kind of turning the stereotypes on their heads and turning family life on their heads and just kind of seeing these two characters click. Well, did, did you have to do a lot of research into reincarnation uh, for, for this book? Fortunately, no, because I'll be the first. I hate research. Oh, my God. I want to pull my hair. I do it, and I love what I find, but I can't stand it. It is like pulling fingernails off me. With the Falling Awake books, they had to do quite a bit with reincarnation. So I had done four books with that already, which is kind of a theme of that. So going into this, it wasn't nearly as prevalent, but it was presented as a what if these two characters could be. And that was fun. Now, when you're writing these characters, when you've come up with them, uh, well, I should ask this first. Are you, are you, were you thinking of the storyline first or were you thinking of kind of like the setting and the storyline or did you think of the characters and then put them into the story? I knew it was going to be two characters ahead of time and I knew. I knew the, the basic idea of where it would take place. Um, I knew it would be Caucasian character, Asian character. Where it starts coming together for me is when I'll sit down, and I've done this six out of the ten books. Everything starts coming together for me first with dialogue. I will sit there and listen to the characters talk in my head, put them together, and just write out conversations with them that do end up in the book. It gives me a sense of who they are, what their cadence, what their rhythm is, and how they're going to react to each other. Once I've got the conversations down, I can go back in and say, okay, this is going to be for this particular scene. This is going to be for another scene. Start divvying that up. I also know how I want the first chapter to be where I introduce them. And after I've written the first chapter, I actually go and I write the very last chapter. And then how I get there, everything in between happens on its own. Well, talking about... You know these characters and and writing out their their dialogue. Do you have an inner monologue? Can you hear your characters as you're writing, or do you have some other way of doing this? No, usually I'll I'll just listen to them. Um, I'll start off with you know it may be in the middle of the conversation because I'll get maybe one character makes a little joke, 
well, what led up to that particular joke? And I'll just start writing it, writing it, and writing it, and I'll read it out loud to myself. As I'm ri- reading it out loud, I'm like, now he wouldn't say that. Now the rhythm's off. Now we need to put that in the beginning. And it just, it gets this whole thing going. It's like watching a sitcom on television almost, where it's like they're batting one comment after the other, just having this conversation. You get a feel like, you know what? This rings true to me. This feels like it's genuine, that this could be a real conversation between two people. And if I can get to that point where both characters feel genuine to me, then I know I've got the start of the characters. Well, well, speaking of comedy, do you think there's like a comedic timing that you need to write prose fiction that's funny or, uh, you know, kind of kind of like a comedian does like a stand up comedian? Or is there some other way that you accomplish it? Well, stand-up comedians, it's usually set up, punchline, set up, punchline, set up, punchline. You can do that in a story. I've done it, I think, in previous stories. But like in in Butterflies, uh, one of the characters is afraid he's going to be kicked out of his home. His father has said, you can no longer see this person. If you do, you're no longer welcome in our home. And there gets to be a, a, a joke that's brought up where a character says, hey, I started a GoFundMe page for you, which, okay, it's cute in that sense. But as the chapters progress, you will have a person come up and say, you know, I just donated to your GoFundMe page. I just saw it. So you get this reoccurrence of it and you build on it, which I think is important, too. You can have a joke in there. People are going to forget it. But if you've got a joke and then you get to build on it a little at a time, they start to remember and you start seeing it, seeing it follow through. And that to me is important. Right. It gets funny each each time. Right. And they, they tend to remember that a little bit more than just, you know, one little quip here, one little quip there. So, so when you're hearing these voices, are you, do you find yourself, do you walk down the street and, and hear voices and start talking <laughs> and people kind of look at you and stay away from you? Fortunately, the majority of it is when I'm driving and when <laughs> I get to work. Where I, I'm just they let you music. drive hearing voices? <laughs> I can drive, listen to music, and I'll hear these the conversations. I'll talk about people think I'm singing along to a song, which is great for me. I'll get into a parking lot and I'll email myself you know, the conversation or... If I'm out mowing the lawn or doing the hedges, I've got headphones on still listening to music. And as long as I've got a lawnmower going, nobody can hear what I'm saying. They don't care. When you do this book and now that you finished it, what happens to the characters for you? Well, <laughs> I was perfectly content with letting these particular ones uh, just kind of sit by the wayside for a bit. And uh, there was somebody who had reviewed the book and she wrote me um, a message on, on Facebook and she said, well, you know, I'm very curious about these other two, these secondary characters. I'm like, what were you curious about? She says, well, what happened next? What's their story? I'm like, well, there isn't one. And dummy me, I take off 10 minutes later, I'm driving to Meyer. I sit in the park, Meyer parking lot, and I'm like, oh, yep, there is a story. Son of a gun. So it just sort of happens. Um... Yep, and not when you necessarily want it to. <laughs> so and how long does it take you to do one of these books, like this book? How long did it take you to write it? The last two took me a year, uh, and that's that's from beginning to finishing editing. What is the process then? What what is it that you find that takes you the longest of this this process? Finding the time to actually write it. Uh, I work full time in a hospital. Sometimes you come home, and if you've been around traumas, you're not in the best of moods. If you've got, I've got a dog right now at home who uh, I had gotten from my mother when she passed away, and. Dog still feels I should be treating him like royalty like she did, and I disagreed, and he disagrees with my disagreeing. So, I mean, come home, sometimes you don't always have a chance to write, or if I'm traveling, if I go to see my husband, who's overseas for a period of time, 
you're jet lagged, you can't really sit down to write. It really is. It's it's struggling to find the time to actually sit down, not have interruptions, and just go at it. Yeah, and I, I, it sounds like the mood, like how you feel too at the time, makes a difference. I mean, sure. If you've had somebody who passed away in a trauma that day, you come home and you're like, God, I can't come up with a funny line. There's a reason why. Well, you know, we've talked to a lot of writers that can go right through that and just sit down and write. They can just do it even at the most unopportune time. It's kind of crazy. I admire the fact that they can do that. I, a lot of times at work, sometimes too, something that happens to you in life which you just never counted on will just inspire you to sit down and just think, God, this was such a crazy incident that happened. I, you know, I, would, I, I just I feel energized to be able to do it. So now your main characters in this book, do they come from other people that you've known or met or um, maybe maybe some of the characters? Many of the characters do. There's a little bit of somebody I know in each of the characters. I finally think after 10 books, I've gotten away from putting parts of myself in there. But people who I've met from job to job or from place to place or from traveling, there's something about them that will end up in a character at some point because it's just too much fun not to. Yeah, I guess, you know, that's kind of how we we develop these characters. Do you find that each time you write a book, you, you change somewhat, you get different? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I try to. I, the last book, the, prior, the book prior that I wrote, um, called The Beautiful Moment, it's one of the most depressing type of books you would read. It has a good ending, and it's, it's a romance, but it has to do with a character who has lost his great-grandmother when he was young. He was physically abused by his uncles. Uh, his father had passed away at a young age, and his mother had just passed away from COVID, and his uncles want his inheritance. So there's nothing really beautiful about it. But as the story progresses and he has escaped, he ends up, he ends up uh, moving to the um, Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He ends up in the uh, emergency room. He meets this doctor who, for some reason, just takes a liking to him. And the doctor wants to know more, and the main character just does not want any part of it. It's about how the two of them, it's two steps forward, one step back. And I've never written characters like that before. I've always gone for a bit of the comedy and, and, and some of that. And, there's very little of it in it, but the characters ring very true, and I was dealing with my emotions of having so many people pass away in my life and dealing with grief. That book was about grief. Do you have a favorite um, character that you've written out of all the books you've done? I don't know that I've got a favorite, but there was um, a book, Falling Awake for Retribution, where it, it was almost a noir sort of hybrid Western uh, police type of story that took place in the 1970s. And the lead, uh, the main character in that, who is straight, I don't usually always have a ton of straight characters in there. I usually try to do, I try to put uh, LGBT characters first, but it wasn't that type of story. And he was just an old, retired police chief who didn't put up with anything. He didn't suffer fools. He didn't put up with anything and I, um, I based him, I grew up in law enforcement. My father was a police officer, and I grew up with these cops as a kid. And I put a lot of them into that one character, and he was just an absolute joy to write. Even though he was gruff, he stood for something. He meant something, and I'd never written a character like that before or since. And that one has always stuck out in my head. So where do you see yourself going then? What do you, what do you want to um, do with this um, writing career you've got going on i would love to be able to just retire from the job one day preferably sooner rather than later and just do this full time that that would be what i would i'd love to try and get 
two books out a year instead of one book a year. I would love to be able to do that. I would love to be able to start doing signings again and getting getting out there again, meeting folks and, and just seeing what in the books kind of touches them, what they identify with and go with that. And just, I, I love writing. Writing for me is like breathing. So, so what do you, what makes a good story for you? Believable characters and a little element of not something it's, you can have a cliche in there, but turn it on its head. Do something fun with it. Do something unexpected with it. That's going to get my attention. And what are your influences? What were the things that kind of, um, let's say, turn you on about writing? I, this, this is going to sound odd. What really kind of pushed me to want to write, especially to um, B-movies, god-awful B-movies. I loved them, loved watching them wanted to go home and write the story about them or wanted to continue on with those particular stories in my own way. One of my degrees is in film. The other was creative writing. I would have loved to have worked with Roger Corman and just made B movies for a you know, couple of years, maybe a decade or so. I love that a lot of the B films you had like the film poster and the film poster always promised you a lot more than maybe the film delivered, but it was the idea and the concept behind it. High concept, low budget. I think in books you can have an unlimited budget, but you still have to have that determination of saying, I have this concept and I really want to put this concept through. It may work. It may not, but that's what drives me to go ahead and do it. Just being something a little bit different out there than anybody else. If that made sense. Totally makes sense. So, would you do you think that um, writing in the uh, LGBTQ area is 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 a positive thing right now? Is it is it easy? Do publishers look for it? What do you what do you think about the writing community as far as as that goes? The writing community. I know a lot of folks in the writing community. They're amazing. I love it. I wish more people in the community read. I have been to um, Pride Festivals in the past, uh, sat at uh, author tables with other authors. People come up, they're polite, they look, they walk away, or if they get into, they got into a conversation. I have a, a friend, a fellow author named Alan Chin, who got into a conversation. He'd written a book called Matchmaker, it was about tennis, and they happened to know mutual people. They played on mutual teams together. They had a really great conversation. And Alan had looked up at one point and says, you know, I'd, I'd really love to sign a, a copy of the book for you. And the guy looked at me and says, I don't read. And he walked away. <laughs> Other people have noticed, too, I mean, it's if I think it's out there. It's normal information of uh, the majority of LB, LGBT fiction is written by heterosexual women and is read by heterosexual women. Yeah. I, I wish we had more people reading. Does that bother you or like that heterosexual woman would write? I hear a lot of controversy with that, that, that they're writing gay stories and gay romance and stuff. Is that, do you have any issue with that yourself? God, no. I mean, these people are amazing. They're some of the best friends I've got. I, they think about things I don't. I mean, it's, it's still fiction. It's still a story. And they're telling it in their own unique way. And I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I do too. I, I, but we get a, we get a number of complaints voiced over the time, over the years, you know. Kind of crazy. Everyone's complaining, you know, about everything. About something, sure. Yeah. Sure. I'm complaining about Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> not enough nude scenes. Come on. <laughs> anyway. I don't know if you'd be interested in this or not. I do do you know you know who Barry Bostwick is, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I was coming out with my third comedy at the time it was called Galius Operation Thunderspell. Massive comedy and one of the characters in it 
mentioned and loved this film that Barry Bostwick had done back in 1982 called Megaforce. Not that many people know Megaforce. I was 12 years old. I knew that film. I can't tell you the number of times I've rented it on VHS. So I find out that uh, this was God, maybe a decade, decade and a half ago that Barry Bostwick was going to be at a uh, convention called Dragon Con in Atlanta, which I was going to quite regularly at the time. And at my age, I lost my crap thinking, oh, my God, Barry Bostwick, who played the character of Ace Hunter and Megaforce, is going to be there. I have got to see this guy. I'm going to have my picture taken with him. So I go fly in, pay for the picture, and the guy says, oh, come at you know 7 o'clock tonight. Barry will be here. Great. Show up at 7. The guy says, oh, I'm so sorry. Barry left. What do you mean Barry left? What? I'm right here. You said 7 o'clock. He's not. Tell you what. Um, it was my fault. Be here tomorrow at 7 o'clock, and I'm going to throw in a picture of Alan Ruck because they're here together for Spin City. Um, I'll throw in a picture. Oh, great. Fine. Show up the next night, 7 o'clock. Picture with Alan's first. Alan comes up. We're standing next to each other. Barry's off behind us, and we're getting ready to take the picture. Now, I have practiced for three months my smile because I have a very awkward smile. So I thought, this is good. I've got it perfected. It's going to be good. Barry off to the background, and he's like, Hey, guys, get closer. Like, oh, okay, so scoot a little bit closer. Guy's going to take the picture and Barry Bostrick to the back of us. Guys, get closer. Like, um, okay, we get a little bit closer. Guys, get closer. We're like, you know what? His wife's standing right there. We're close enough. This is good. We're fine. The guy takes the picture. Absolutely perfect picture. He's as nice as can be. So I'm still standing there. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to stand there. I've got this smile plastered. It's, it's perfect. Barry comes up right behind me. And I can I can feel the heat from him as he's standing behind me. He leans in and he says, this is how you take a picture. Now, there is no logical reason on this earth for what went through my mind next. But with his face literally an inch away from mine as he leans in, what went through my head was, oh, my God, Barry Bostrick's going to kiss me. <laughs> no idea why. And my face went, and that perfect smile that I had three months spent on went into this utter chaotic, holy smoke look, and that jerk behind the camera snapped the shot. (laughs) I have the worst picture with the hero I had been waiting to meet since 1982. Well, there you go. You can post that everywhere. You know, and it was, no, it's, it's like, that's, that's when you know life is sending you a message that sometimes it's, it's funny. It's a horrible picture, <laughs> but it's funny. Yeah. Well, you know, stay with it. Why not? Why not? So you, you big on social media, you big on, um, website, like, uh, um, how do you, how do people find Christopher? It'd be mostly social media. I'm, well, for what good it does, Twitter. Um, I'm all over Facebook, uh, on Instagram, still learning Instagram. I don't post on there nearly enough. I do a lot of uh, online events. There's a couple of local authors here who do online events uh, for a month at a time. I try and get on there, and it's gotten my name out there. I've done a couple of anthologies, which introduced me to a romance audience, which I never really considered myself a romance author before, but friends have said I am, and I really still fight that, but whatever. It's still, hey, people got to read me great. Um, other than that, I try and do conventions when I could, but before COVID. Well, you can start getting out there again now. You know, I mean, uh, as things come up, it's getting getting close to normal again. Yeah, more so than we've seen in a long time. Yeah, yeah. Next year, everything should be back to normal. Um, as long as nothing else happens, you know, it should be uh, 
greatest rain. That would be nice. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Well, of course, we're going to have everything up. We'll have all your information up on on, on our website as well so people can find you. But, um, yeah, social media is good. Social media will brand you and, and people find you. You never know who's looking. I mean, you know, I I was looking. Which is funny, too, because I found out we were friends on Facebook. I'm like, son of a gun, I did not know that. Yeah, I look for writers. That's what I do. I browse around looking for writers. And, you know, because, like I said, we get a lot of the um, – the bigger big writers from the um, A list that comes through their agents, and then we. I, but I like to mix it up. I like to have uh, new writers and and independents and stuff like that. I don't want to just all have, you know, commercial people. You know. So and speaking as an independent, thank you. We appreciate you. Yeah, well, it's a good mix up. You know, it's a good mix. We have a good variety of people, and you're not always going to get the same old thing, so to speak, except for me. Of course, <laughs> that's pretty old, and it's the same old thing, you know. And uh, Dave, there, he wears his dress and liven things up, but yeah. But anyway, I do my best. You know. How was COVID for you then? How was it for you? Did it, did it affect your writing? Um, only when I had COVID, I had managed to escape it for about two years, and a coworker gave it to me, so I was down for a week. And I just laid on the couch and wanted to die, basically, and how it felt. And my lovely dog would sit next to me, and he was ticked off because during the day he goes next door to my neighbors. And when I had him here, I couldn't have him go over there because I didn't know if he was carrying it or not. So as I'm laying on the couch and just basically feeling like I'm dying, he's sitting next to me pounding his paw on the couch because he's ticked off. He can't go next door. That's how it is. They're like kids, you know. He's he's a gem. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I love dogs. Just that whole time period when you're seeing the way people were and, you know, the way uh, everything's been, you know, COVID's fake and all the conspiracy and stuff like that. Does it sort of um, change the characters you write in a book, do you think? Does it, does it affect how you come up with characters? That is a really, really good question. I kind of only mentioned COVID in The Beautiful Moment, and that was because the character's uh, parent had died of it. There have been a number of folks that I've read on, on social media who are like, oh, it doesn't exist, it's not that, it's not this. And I will be very, very polite when I respond back to it and just say, you know what, I work in a hospital, I've seen the people on the ventilators, why don't you come in? Let me show you what it looks like. Let me show you that it's real. Well, you know, and my comment on uh, that was, you know, the people that were complaining, I'd send them to the uh, place dealing with the bodies for a week and make them work there, you know. Yeah. Well, what kicked me, though, is in the beginning when we were trying to, when people come in the hospital, I worked in several different areas. We'd have people walking in, and we'd have to give them hand sanitizer first before they walked in. And there was always that one person who liked having an audience. So you'd be standing in line coming up, and, he, and I'd say, you know, please, I, I, I do need to give you some hand, t- hand sanitizer. And he says, well, what if I don't want it? Well, I'm really sorry, but you do need to have it before you walk in. Well, I will use hot water and uh, soap. That's great, but I still have to give you the sanitizer. So he turns around, looks at everybody else, looks back at me, and says, what if I went home and took a bath in sanitizer? Wrong thing to say to me. I looked at him, and I said, I think it would burn all the hard-to-reach places. People behind him started laughing, and I ended up shaming him into using hand sanitizer, which is probably not the greatest thing I could have done. But people's behavior was atrocious at that time. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. So it makes you wonder, you know, and I, I, I always ask writers about that, if it's kind of changed opinions, because it brings out a lot of things that you don't normally see. I haven't really seen in people 
my whole life, my whole 60 plus years. I look at it and it sort of surprised me in some cases. So um, I just wonder about characters. I don't really think it's influenced the characters so much, um, but I, I was only, I think I was actually writing a, the book I was writing during that time was set in the 1970s, so it really had nothing to do with COVID. If it had been current time, it probably would have been a little more influenced right. by it, but it just wasn't when I was writing at the time. It's focused more on disco, I guess. <laughs> Not even that, fortunately. <laughs> well, it was, it's great, great conversations. Interesting. It's always good to get uh, indie takes, and I appreciate it. And, of course, your latest book is called Butterflies I Have Known. And our guest is the writer of that, and everyone go see him. It's Christopher Gare. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thanks, Christopher. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the introduction of something weird media. I'll be back.